0: Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, well, that's our text for today, we won't really start there, we'll actually start in verse 9, and then we'll work up to 13, and uh, you might want to put your thumb in Genesis too, because we're going to be there shortly also, if you want to get ahead of the curve, so we'll start there. You will recall that after all the, after all of that bitter news, remember all of the gravity. We took our time, walked through that warning passage, probably one of the most, if not the most difficult passage, in scripture. Is that Hebrews chapter six, verses six through eight? And so we really dug into that and uh, and looked at that in uh, in deep detail. But our author here now, after having warning them about the dangers of falling away, he now moves. Remember to encourage them. Because you have some of those in the church, in the uh, epistle to the Hebrews here. You have some of them who are being tempted to fall away, to deny their profession of faith, go back to Judaism. They're under immense persecution. They have many trials in their life. They've been kicked out of the synagogue. Their, their children uh, are, are kicked out of the rabbinical schools. They're not welcome to trade in the market. It's a very, very difficult time. and It's being ramped up all every day. And so the author of Hebrews wants to encourage them. He's, he's, he's warned them first. Remember, if you recall, in chapter 5, he was talking about why Christ is better. Remember, that's been the whole theme of Hebrews. And then in the middle here, he stops at verse 11 and goes off on this little, this little diatribe, if you will, this warning that goes from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 12. And he really is saying, listen, I want to tell you why Christ is better, and I want to tell you about the Melchizedekian priesthood. And it's important that you understand that so you know why Christ why Christ, is the great high priest and not just a high priest. But I can't explain that to you because you've, you're not maturing in your faith because you're still stuck over here on the fundamentals of Judaism. And so he stops in the middle of that, and then he gives him this warning and tells them they're dull of hearing, right? They've been been lazy, they've been sluggish. In other words, they have not been applying the knowledge that they have gained to their lives. They've been slacking, if you will. And because they have not been applying their faith to their lives, they're falling away. Some of them are falling away. And so he stops in the middle and says, I'd love to tell you more, but you can't handle it. You're not mature enough to handle it. The reason you're not mature enough to handle it is because you have not been applying the truths of God's word to your life. And the moment you stopped applying the truth of God's word to your life, you started to fall away. And some of you have completely fallen away, and he warns them. Well, now he wants to encourage them. He not only wants them to know the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ, but now he wants them to have the full assurance of the hope they have in Christ. And that's what starts that. And he does that in chapter 6, verse 9. So let's just pick it up there. So, uh, And he's going to reach out to the true believers in the congregation. Remember, every congregation has true believers, professing believers, and those who are just seeking, right? Those who are, those are seeking, the unsaved. And he does two things. He, he wants to point to the true believers, and he wants to say to them, I know that your faith is not like the faith of those I just warned about. I know your faith is genuine. You're not just a professing believer. And I want to assure you, I want you to have the assurance of of your faith and of the hope in Christ like I have in you. So that's number one. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to go back to the professing believers and go live like them, live your faith out like these true believers. That's the difference. And so he wants to accomplish those two things. And so the first thing he does is he wants to assure the true believers, and he does that by doing two things. He says, I want you to have the assurance of your faith, and the reason I have, I believe that you have genuine faith is because what I've seen about you, the way I've seen you demonstrate your faith, that's number one, and number two, the things I know about God. What I've seen, you living out your faith in the things I know about God. He says, those two things give me the assurance of hope that your faith is genuine. And so then in verse 10, he says, what are those two things? He goes, well, let me tell you what they are. Verse 10, for God is not unjust. That's what he knows about God. He knows if God sees these things, he knows those things. And since he knows the hearts of men, he says, if I'm seeing these things that accompany salvation, that gives me great hope that your faith is real. So he says in verse 10, therefore God is not unjust so as to forget your, what, work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered, past tense, and in still ministering, present tense, to the saints. So he says, here they are, two things are mentioned here that accompany salvation, work. And love, work and love. Again, the salvation here, the work here is not the cause of their salvation. It it accompanies salvation, right? We're not saved by our works. That's evident throughout scripture. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, if you are genuinely saved, these things should accompany your salvation. These are the things that believers should be demonstrating or manifesting in their life at some point and in some capacity. So, and one of those things is bearing fruit. That's one of the things that accompanies salvation. So if we are truly saved, then those spiritual fruits should begin to be manifested at some point in our life, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, okay? So if we're truly saved. So if we find that again now, the second thing he says in the second half of verse 10 there is their love for Christ... And he knows they have a great love for Christ. How does he know they have a great love for Christ? Not just because they say it, but because they serve one another. How do you know you love Christ? Because you serve one another. He says that is the proof in the pudding, if you will. That's, the, that's something that accompanies salvation, this desire to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not have had that desire before, but once you're saved... In some capacity, you want to be around other believers and you want to serve other believers. You want to use the gifts and the skills and the talents that God has given you. Incidentally, your spiritual gifts are not for you. They're for the body of Christ. They're for the body of Christ. They're not for you. Your spiritual gifts are for me and for each other, right? They're not for you and vice versa. Okay. Then at verse 11 here, Again, this is just a review to get us up to speed. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So now he now he moves to point uh, to these true believers as an example. So he goes back to the professing believers and go and goes, be like these folks. You want to have the assurance of your hope? Live it out like these folks are doing. Live it out like they are doing. And he says, uh, if you're contemplating falling away from your profession of faith and returning to Judaism, in essence, he's saying to the professing believers, imitate what these folks are doing. What were they doing? They were applying the truths of God's word to their life. They were actually living their faith out, not just talking about it. Living it out. He says, the only difference between you... And the true believers is that they're diligent about their faith. That word diligent means fast, speedy, hastily. In other words, they don't just hear it and go, you know, someday I I think I'll apply that to my life. So That sounds really good. I know God wants me to do it. Maybe someday in the future when I'm not so busy, I'm going to apply that to my life. He says, no, the difference between the professing believers and the true believers is that the true believers hear God's word... And they're not just puffed up with this knowledge. They say, I'm supposed to do something with this. And the first question they ask themselves is, what would God have me do with that information? How am I supposed to apply that to my life to bring glory to him? That's the first question that a true believer asks. A professing believer would hear that and go, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. What will my friends think? I'm going to get a lot of grief if I stop doing that. A true believer says, This is what God says. This is what I need to do, and I need to apply it to my life, no matter how hard it is, because this will bring glory to God. So He's saying, listen, imitate what these folks are doing because they're not just hearing it, they're applying it, and they're applying it how? Quickly. They're rapidly applying it to their life, not waiting around for some day. Then in verse 12, he says, so that, he goes, I want you to apply these things diligently, speedily, so that you have the full assurance of your hope until the very end, verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, that's our very same word as dull of hearing in the beginning, right? Same word, not thrust. But imitators of those who through faith and patience, there we go, faith and patience, inherit the promises. And when it gets done at verse 12, that's the springboard. Faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, listen, uh, these professing believers are tempted to fall away and they've been dull of hearing or sluggish or lazy. They've not applied the truth of Christ to their lives. They've not let go of the elementary teachings of the Messiah. They're still clinging on to those. And consequently, they do not enjoy the full assurance of hope in Christ. Now to encourage them to hold steady... He's just said to the professing believers, look at the true believers. See how they're applying it to their life? Look at them. Now he's going to say, now let me give you an example of somebody that you're very familiar with. This guy named Abraham. And we're going to look at his life and I'm going to show you what faith and patience looks like in the life of Abraham. And I want to assure you that because of his faith and his patience, he inherited the promises of God. So he takes them then to Abraham. Now, again, Abraham is a key figure, right? He's a patriarch, and he would have been very important. They would have went right ahead and said, well, they call him Father Abraham, right? He's, he's one of the patriarchs of our faith. And his story, again, is told in 14 chapters between uh, Genesis chapter 12 and... 25. So mark your place in Hebrews, go back to Genesis chapter 12. Way back, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now God commanded Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and travel to a land that God would show him. He so God said, Pack up your belongings, take your family, and keep moving until I tell you to stop. And remember we talked about that last week. That was that him alone going was the first step of faith, right? Because he doesn't know if he's going to speak the language, he has no idea whether he'll be able to support himself, he doesn't know what the dangers will be along the way. There's no nine one one, there's no hotels, there's Right? You know, there's no Motel 6 to lead a light on for him, right? It's, it's going to be dangerous. He doesn't even know how far he's supposed to go. And yet he does it. Then in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we see this promise. God promises Abram, that's his name now in, in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God promises Abram that he will bless him, he will multiply his children, and he will make him into a great nation. Now, Abram is not a spring chicken here at this point. He's 75 years old. And God also promised him that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed and that he would make his name great. And then He, these promises are given to Abram again and again and again. He tells him in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 22. Now mind you, when Abram receives these great promises from God, he is 75 years old and his wife Sarai is barren. They've never had any children, and it doesn't look like they ever will. Turn then to Genesis chapter 15, because Abram wavers in the promises that God has given him, and he needs some encouragement, and God is right there. So he encouraged him in chapter 13, now he encourages him in chapter 15. Time is marching on. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Abram now is beginning to wonder if this heir is supposed to be his servant, Eleazar. He's like, you know, clearly, uh, we're not going to have any children. But uh, maybe you meant through Eleazar, since he's my servant, and the, his line, well, that's how you're going to bless me. And because uh, it doesn't look likely that they're going to have any children. And time is marching on. He's not getting any younger, and neither is Sarai. So, but he still received this by faith. He waited patiently for God to fulfill him. Look at verse. Six Or verse 5. Verse 4. We'll just go back to verse 4. How about that? <laughs> then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Now you can imagine the raised eyebrow on, on uh, Abram's face when he's telling this, and, and probably a bigger raised eyebrow on Sarai's face is, is here it is. But anyway, he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord. And he reckoned, that's accounting terms that mean it credited to him. God credited his belief in God as what? as righteousness. Abram believed that he would become a father, even at this very old age, and that his offspring would have children, and that his line would multiply as numerous as the stars in heaven. Abram trusted in God and trusted in his word, or trusted in his promises. And because of his great faith, God declared him righteous. Now, mark this. This is 14 years before circumcision. That doesn't come until Genesis chapter 17, 14 years later. So Abram is not declared righteous because of circumcision. And incidentally, it's hundreds of years before the law is given on Mount Sinai. So he's not declared righteous because of this, uh, the uh, the sign of the covenant, circumcision. He's not declared righteous because of the law, all things which get confused later. Why is he credited as being righteous because he believed in God and believed his promise. That is what credited. It. Keep that in mind. Now, uh, then notice in chapter uh, 15, verses 12 through 18, God is going to commemorate or ratify, if you will, this covenant. So now when the sun goes down, chapter 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had said that it was very sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed through these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So, God in the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, okay, uh, which the Hebrew word is barith, which means to cut. Okay, why would you say to cut? Well, the way that they would make a covenant, it was they'd take an animal and cut it in half. Sounds a little gruesome, doesn't it? But anyway, they'd cut it in half and then they would walk between the pieces. Each person would walk through the pieces and that would signify what? If I or one of us breaks this covenant, you may do to us what we just did to this animal. It's a pretty serious thing, is it not? In other words, you'd pay for it with your life. You were given your binding oath that this is what you were going to do. But notice... It is not Abram who walks through the pieces. Who is it? It's God who walks through the pieces. It's God who's saying, uh, this covenant is secure because it is I who am securing the covenant. So God's promise to Abram is unconditional. It's not based on Abram. It is eternal because it's made by an eternal God and it's unilateral, which means God is the one who made it. God is the one who determined it, and God is the one who secured it. And that's a good thing, because as we read out in Genesis, Abram is going to have lots of lapses in his faith. He's already had a couple. He's going to have a couple more. And one of those comes in chapter 16, where Sarai, his wife, becomes impatient, and she wants Abram to produce an heir through her handmaid, Hagar. Abram listens to Sarai, and soon Hagar conceived a son named Ishmael. Now, Abram, Genesis 16, 16, tells us, is how old at this time? He's 86. 11 years. 11 years have went by since God first promised Abram that his descendants would be as many as the stars. And now he has an heir. But is it the right heir? No, it's not. And God is going to tell him that. So uh, again, then we come to chapter 17, and in chapter 17, it tells us in verse 1, now how old is Abram? 99. Now we're 24 years since the very first promise. Abram is now called uh, Abraham. Abraham means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And he grows in his faith. Time marches on. Finally, we get to uh, verse 20, or chapter 21. Uh, God, in his perfect will and timing, sees fit to fulfill the promise, and he gives uh, Abraham and Sarah, that's her name now, Sarah, the promised heir. Chapter 21. His name is Isaac, which means laughter. And that's the child that God had promised. Twenty-four years. Twenty-four years. God gave Abraham and Isaac through a barren woman to demonstrate that he and he alone was the only one who could fulfill a promise like that. In fact, not only was he the only one who could fulfill it, he's the only one who provided all that was necessary for the promise to be fulfilled. It was God and God alone who fulfilled every aspect of his promise. And that's very important to remember as we begin our look deeply at our text here this morning. Now keep your thumb in Genesis because we're coming back. But flip back over to chapter 6 of Hebrews. Because we want to tie in now God's faithful promise in regards of Abraham and Isaac. So look at verse 13 here. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So here we read about one more testing of Abraham's faith. Now look at here in verse 13. Notice our text says that God, when God made the promise. What promise is that? Is that the promise God made him in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant? Or is it the one he reiterated in chapter 13, 15, 17, 18, and 22? Which promise are we talking about? Or is it the one that he commemorated and ratified himself as he went through and walked through the pieces as a flaming oven in Genesis 15? The answer? Yes, yes, and yes. In God's mind, there's one covenant still, the very first one he gave. This is one promise in God's mind, one covenant. It has not changed. Notice the text states, Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. When did that happen? When did God swear by himself that the covenant God promised to Abram would have the full assurance of God's oath? Where was that? Well, we find that in verse 14 of Hebrews 6. (coughs) Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. That is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 22. So, now why is this significant? Uh, and it's, this is significant because this comes immediately after what would become Abraham's greatest testing of his faith. Genesis chapter 22. So flip over to Genesis chapter 22, because I want you to see this. 1. <clears throat> now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now notice that the text tells us that this is not a temptation, right? This is a test. Uh, not a temptation. James chapter 1 tells us, right? God does not tempt us, right? We're tempted when we have our own sinful desires, right? Uh, are hijacked, if you will, by our sinfulness. However, this is a test. He does, God doesn't tempt us. He does, however, test our commitment, or if you will, the genuineness of our faith. Flip over, keep your place here in Genesis 22 for a second, but flip over to Exodus chapter 15, as I want you to see this here. Verse 25, in the Song of Moses... Verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Verse 25, then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it to the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he did what? He tested them. He tested them. Will you believe that I that I took you into the desert and that I will provide for you or not? He tested the genuineness of their faith. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. Not only does it provide water for them, he also provides bread or manna. Chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may what? Test them. I want to test the genuineness of your faith. I want, to, I want to see if you will demonstrate for me that you believe in me and you believe in my word. And that when I make a promise to you that it's true and that it will not waver. And that that promise is rooted in who God is. It's rooted in God himself and his very character. So then he then, this is, he's testing Abraham's faith like none other he has encountered before. Now go back to 22, Genesis 22, look at verse 2. Because here, now, he's going to tell Abraham what the test is. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah... And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So God is calling Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Now I want to pause for a minute and think about the ramifications of what God has just told Abraham. First, let me state emphatically that God is not advocating child sacrifice, okay? That's demonic, that's not of the Lord. In fact, uh, the Lord prohibits it in Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 12.31. He prohibits it explicitly. Although the pagans around were doing child sacrifice, they were sacrificing to Molech, they got a fire. They were throwing their children in the fire, they were sacrificing and throwing them in the fire. God strictly prohibited that. What this is, though, is a genuine testing of Abraham's faith. Notice he says, take your son, your only son. Doesn't Abraham have another son? Yes, but he only has one son of promise. One son of promise. You see that in Genesis 17, 21, when God says, it is through Isaac that the covenant is made. It is through Isaac and Isaac alone that the covenant promises will be fulfilled. And it is Isaac, it is in Isaac, that God has specifically named as the son of, that Abraham must sacrifice. Now I want you to imagine for a moment what that must have been going through Abraham's mind as he listens to God tell him that he has to kill and sacrifice the son who's the heir of the promises that he's been waiting for for 25 years now. Think about that for just a second, what that must have been like. I waited, I waited, I waited, I faltered. You encouraged me, I faltered. I thought it was right. I tried to take matters in my own hand. No, no, no. Wait some more. Do you believe? Do you trust in me? Yes or no? Wait, 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 wait. Finally, God fulfills his promise. Now, again, later, here, Isaac is older, probably about 20. Go and take him and sacrifice him. This is the child that he and Sarah waited for. This is the child the angel of the Lord had told him about. This is the child that would ensure God's promises would be fulfilled. And Abraham's lineage would be as vast as the stars in heaven. They were thrilled at his birth. They rejoiced when God chose in his perfect time to fulfill his promise. But now, God, now you want me to build an altar and sacrifice this child of mine? Can you imagine the anguish and the utter despair that he must have had as those words are falling on his ears? What Abraham is going through, what some today would call a crisis of faith, will God keep his promise? Will he continue to believe that God's promises, his word, is true or not? You can't do both. You either believe or you don't. He must either remain faithful and trust in God by faith and obey what God tells him to do, or he must tell God that he won't do it. God, I can't do it. I won't do it. And he could either say it in words or say he won't do it in his actions. So what will Abraham do? Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, rose and went to the place of which God had told him. The third day, Abraham raised his eyes, saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to the young man, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there. This trip was over 50 miles. It would take three days to get there. Now, that must have been an excruciating three-day trip, don't you think? As every step would bring them closer, closer and closer to Abraham needing to act in obedience to what God has told him to do. Every step would have been agonizing. Three days is a long time to be thinking about something this big. Three days to back out. Three days to change his mind. Three days to break down and crowd to the Lord and tell him he just can't do it. Or three days of steadfast faith, marching towards uncertainty, but trusting the Lord every step of the way. What choice would Abraham make? Look at verse five. He says them, "We will worship and return to you. Look at that. We will worship. Did you catch that? We. We will return. We will worship. I believe at this moment that Abraham is so sure that God's promises are true. He is so has such belief that whatever God said that somehow God's going to make that happen. That he believes that he that God is actually going to resurrect Isaac from the dead. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter eleven tells us that it's exactly what he was thinking. So Abraham marches on, closer and closer, steadfast faith. Look at verse six. He takes the wood of the burnt offering. He lays it on his son. Isaac, he took his hand. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. They worked. They walked on together. Verse seven. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, "My father," he said, "Here I am, my son. Behold, I behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering, Dad? Where's the? What are we going to sacrifice?" Abraham said, "God will provide." God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So Isaac there asked the obvious question and Abraham assures him that God is going to provide. What tremendous faith of Abraham. What tremendous faith of Isaac also in Abraham, if you will. Finally, the moment has come. Verses 9 to 14. They come to the place of which God has told them and Abraham built the altar there, rages the wood, Binds his son, Isaac, and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretches out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son. But God intercedes. angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He instructs Abraham to do nothing to his son Isaac. He says, I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld him from me. In other words, Abraham, because you trusted me and demonstrated your faith even in the midst of a severe testing, I know now without a doubt that you believe in me and my promises. Abraham, you've passed the test of faith. You have held nothing back in your faith, not even the thing you hold most dear in life. So as Abraham raised his undoubtedly teary eyes, he notices that God had provided the sacrifice because stuck in the thicket in the horns was a ram that God had provided. Now, I don't have time to share with you all that that means. Maybe we'll share that in, on uh, Easter this year. Genesis chapter 22, verse 16 and 17 then. Verse 15, I'll go, I don't know why I keep doing that. Anyway, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Verse 16, he says what? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, verse 17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, go back to Hebrews. Chapter 6. What's the significance of that quote? Well, we find that in verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, he did what? He obtained the promise. How patiently did Abraham have to wait? 25 years. years. 25 years what was his reward Abraham obtained the promises that God had promised to deliver to him why did Abraham believe God's promises because God himself was the basis of that faith God's promises were not secured by Abraham's faith they were secured by God's faithfulness to his word Yes, those promises were obtained by Abraham by faith, but they were secured and provided by God. The assurances of the faith that Abraham received was grounded in the very character of God. Abraham faltered many times in his faith along the way, but God never faltered in his faithfulness to his promises. In fact, he could not, since those very promises were given and ratified and secured and commemorated and stated in his holy word. Now why is that significant to us? Well, Let me illustrate it to you like this. One day while flying his plane a pilot noticed there was a small cloud up ahead. He decided just to fly through it. And once he got into the midst of the cloud he realized that it wasn't as small as he had thought. So he decided to pull up and out of it, but after pulling up for a long period of time, he decided to try and just point the nose of the plane down to get out of this cloud. But still not being able to get out of the cloud, the pilot became disoriented. With all that maneuvering, he forgot. Am I right side up or upside down? I don't know. I can't see the ground. Sweat began pouring down his face because he didn't know his position. He started to feel upside down. He checked the instruments, they said the plane was still right side up. He felt like the plane was tipped over. The instruments said no, not the case. The pilot made a decision to believe the instruments even though his emotions were leading him differently. And it took all of his energy to believe those instruments were telling him the truth. When his emotions were overriding what he knew the instruments were saying was truth. Finally, he came out of the cloud not far from the ground because the cloud was low. And when he came out, he was right side up, just like his instruments said. Had he believed in just what he had felt, he would be a dead man. But because he acted on the instruments, even though he felt differently, he was alive. What's the application for us? Many times, our emotions in our feelings will lead us into defeat, but the word of God is the instrument that gives us solid guidance and direction that we can count on. When God promises to us, beloved, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it when the stakes are high for you to believe it? Would you still believe it if you lost your job? Would you still believe God's going to care for you? God's going to provide for you? What if there was a sudden and devastating change to your financial security? Would you still believe him? Would you still trust him? Would you still trust in his word? How about your family relationships? What if your marriage needs a little bit of work? Would you still believe him? Would you still trust him? How about if your kids become rebellious and disobedient? Do you still trust God? You still believe him? How about if your family and friends reject you or they seem disinterested in cultivating a deep and abiding relationship with you? You're kind of ostracized now. You're a little too much work. You still believe him? How about your health? Would you remain faithful and trust in God's promises, even if you faced physical hardships that could not be easily remedied? What if that was going to be for certain? what you were going to feel like physically for some time, maybe for the rest of your life. Do you still trust him? Do you still believe in him? Do you still believe his word is true? My friends, this is when the testing of our faith becomes real, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, I trust God, I believe in God. But you know, when the rubber hits the road is when something catastrophic hits your life and you can't fix it yourself. Then you have to ask yourself, am I like the professing believers here in this little church in Hebrews or am I like Abraham who clung to God's promises for a quarter of a century? Which one is it? The author of Hebrews is pointing to Abraham and is saying, here is a man who was tested by God. Most of us will never have a test like that, even though we think our tests are very severe. Not like that. And here's a man who was tested by God and passed the test, not because he never faltered. Notice that? He faltered a lot. Oh, many times. Not because he didn't falter, but because he lived out his faith And he never walked away. Turn to James chapter 2, real quick. One book over to your right. James chapter 2, verse 21. Remember, we just talked about God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Well, here, the Apostle James talks about it in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, his faith was perfected or completed. When did God know that Abraham's faith was genuine? Not when he talked about it, when he lived it when he had to place his son and bind his hands and lay him on top of the wood when he had to raise the knife. That's when God said, stop. I know your faith is genuine, not because of the things coming out of your mouth, but because of the actions in your life. Could Abraham have walked away? Yes. You think he thought about it on that three-day trip? Yes. What father wouldn't? Oh, yeah, that had to be agonizing. He believed God and his promises, and he waited patiently for God to deliver them. And some of those promises took decades for God to deliver upon. We get upset when we have to wait more than three minutes in the drive-thru. 25 years? 25 years. And all along the way, God kept encouraging him, and he remained steadfast. Did he have doubts? Yeah, he did. Did he try to take matters in his own hand and speed up the delivery of those promises in his own time frame? time frame? Yes, he did that too. Did he make some bad decisions when his faith faltered? Guilty as charged? Again. And yet, what he never did was quit living out his faith and he never walked away. Abraham may have stumbled, but he never fell. He just never quit believing. And walked away. And that, my friends, is why he obtained the promises of God. And God's promises for you and me are obtained the very same way. But you too must remain steadfast, even in the midst of your most severe trials. Never, never quit living out your faith, live out your faith diligently. Quickly, apply these truths to your life. Apply the truths from God's word today to your life today. And never, never, never walk away. Don't do it. Remain steadfast, even in the midst of your trials. For God will deliver those promises as he has promised. For his word is truth, and he cannot lie. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. More on that next week. For now, beloved, keep the faith. Trust in God and his word. Wait patiently as you trust in him to deliver. And even if you've faltered in the past, have the full assurance of your faith that his promises are rooted in him and his faithfulness, not yours. Wait patiently. Obtain the promises of God, beloved. Wait patiently. Obtain the promises of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the truth of your word. Lord, it is so hard sometimes when we're facing things that seem to be spinning out of control in our life. We so desperately want to take control of all of those areas ourselves. But, Lord, faith is something different, as your word tells us. It is the assurance of things, Lord, that we cannot see, that we cannot control. It is the belief that you are who you say you are, and that your word is true, and thus your promises are true. And, Lord, that shapes every action that we take. Many, Lord, as you know, in our congregation today are facing trials. Some are physical, some are emotional, some are spiritual. But you, Lord, have made promises through the truth of your word to trust in you and to believe in you and that you'll never leave them or forsake them. You'll never give them more than what they can handle and that you will carry them through. Now, Lord, it's up to us. Do we believe in you? Do we continue to live out our faith even when we can't see your hand? Lord, I pray not, one, not a single one here will ever walk away that will live out our faith and remain true. Father, that's our heart's desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.